Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Now, in today's episode, we are going to take a break from interviewing just some amazing guests that we've had this season, and I'm going to be going solo just to give you guys some resources that I've been using in my personal life, and I think that they can be really helpful for you as well. So today, I'm going to be talking about three books that I've read recently that have made a really big impact, and uh, you may not be a reader, so if anything, this you know, podcast is going to give you the cliff notes of some of the big takeaways that I had so that you can put those same things in play. At the very least, maybe you'll be inspired to at least go out and get the audiobook so that you can listen to it. Because, um, you know, I, I've just found that if you're a leader, there's always demands on your time. You're always being pushed to help somebody to solve a problem, to answer an email, to, you know, pick up the phone. And th- it's easy to let that be totally all-consuming. This is something I've been writing about a lot lately. And the truth is that as we grow as leaders, we actually have to start investing into our own learning and our own growth more. Because as more is being demanded of us, there requires maturity and competency and accountability that I would argue really isn't grown by accident. Those things are grown through intentional, disciplined efforts to focus on the things that are most important. And so, you know, I know it's been a crazy season, but for you as a leader, what are the behaviors that you're developing in yourself that will help grow you and your team for this following year? If you expect your team to get better without you getting better, it's just not going to happen. John Maxwell calls it the law of the lid, that any leader is the lid on their company. And if you expect your company to uh, outpace you, it's just not going to happen. So with that, we're going to jump into these three books that are must reads or you know at least must listen tos. And I think you're going to get a lot of things out of it. All right. So as we get started today, the first thing I'm going to do is give you the names of these three books and you, know, you can get them wherever books are sold. I believe they're all available on audiobook as well. And I read all of these really right at the beginning of 2021, and they made a huge impact on me. So I hope they can do the same for you. The the first book we're going to talk about is called Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0, and that's by Jim Collins and Bill Lazier. The second book is called The 4-Hour Workweek, and that was written by Tim Ferriss probably 10, 12 years ago now. And then the last book is called Profit First by Miles McAllowitz. And those are the names of the three books. I want to jump in and tell you specifically what I took away and how that's impacting just the way that I'm thinking about things, but what that could mean for your business as well. So first off on the list, Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0 by Jim Collins and Bill Lazier. So that name Jim Collins should ring a bell. You know, he's written a lot of very, very popular books, Good to Great, Great by Choice, Built to Last, How the Mighty Fall. He's written a lot and he has dedicated his life to studying why certain business have prolonged success and why other businesses 
end up crashing and burning. And and if you've not read any of his books, they are tremendous. One thing that's cool about Jim Collins as well is that he self-narrates his audiobooks. Like with Good to Great, it's an incredible book. And I, I listen to it on audiobook because it's just so amazing to hear Jim speak. You can just hear the passion and, and the emotion when he's talking and you really connect with him. But Beyond Entrepreneurship is the first book that he ever wrote, and this book came out about 30 years ago, and it was a book that Jim wrote with his mentor, Bill Lazier. Well, Bill has since passed away, and 30 years have gone by since this book came out, so what Jim Collins did to honor his late mentor is he re-released it with new content. So it's still the same original book, Beyond Entrepreneurship, but about half of the book is new content that's called Jim's View from 2020. And it's just amazing to see these concepts that are so tried and true early in Jim Collins' career and then commentary from 30 years later looking at looking at things in retrospect. And it is just – it's an amazing, amazing book that if there was one book I recommend you read this year, it is Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0 by Jim Collins and Bill Lazier. But I want to talk about three different concepts in that book that were very impactful to me. And I, I know that it can it can do the same thing for you, but these are concepts worth thinking about. The first big takeaway from this book is an order of operation. And Jim Collins talks about how a company needs to have vision, then strategy, then tactics. Vision, strategy, tactics. And I'll, I'll define what that is. So vision is, you know, the leader of the company looking ahead and saying, what is the world that I want to create that doesn't exist right now. And and this is very often like bigger than than your business. Maybe it's not, but like what's the world that doesn't exist right now that I want to create? If you work for a fireplace manufacturer, maybe the world that you want to create is you want every family in North America to have a fireplace in their homes. Maybe the world that you want to create as a retailer is that you want the people that work for your company to be able to all afford to buy a house and have their kids go to college, right? This is something that's very big picture. When when I think about my vision for like Wi-Fi and the FireTime network, you know, a lot of this comes down to I want to live in a world where hearth retailers enjoy the growth that they deserve. Now, that's a big, lofty vision. And the truth of the matter is that your vision is really not going to change. Jim Collins talks about how like your vision should really be able to last a company about 100 years. So this is like really, really big picture. But it's important that that is the anchor for where you're going to go, right? What What is like the big picture dream that you're trying to achieve? After that, you move into strategy. Now, strategy says, and let's just use my example with like Wi-Fi, for instance. So strategy says, okay, so we want to live in a world where hearth retailers enjoy the growth that they deserve. So our strategy might be that we're going to come out with a product that makes it easier to quote fireplaces so that any dealer can quote any fireplace in less than 20 seconds, right? That's a strategy. Now, over time, we might change that strategy and say, you know what? There's actually a, there's a better way to achieve our vision. But, you know, for now, we think that this strategy is going to be really effective. And, you know, likewise, if you're a manufacturer, a strategy might be, we're going to get into 
outdoor fireplaces because incidence rate is falling. And since our vision is that, you know, every family deserves to have a fireplace in their house and we know that the incidence rate is falling with new construction, we're going to get into the outdoor space. Like that's a great strategy. Now, the strategy without being anchored in the vision is purposeless. And this is a big deal. If your strategy is not anchored in something bigger, you and your team members will ask the question, why? Right? So like, we're going to get into the outdoor space for fireplaces. Why? It's going to be difficult when things come up. Why are we doing this? Your vision answers the question of why. And without a why, you're going to be crippled. So you start with vision. You move to strategy and then finally is tactics and tactics is going to be like in the here and now when we're in hand to hand combat, like what do we do? Do we turn left? Do we turn right? How fast do we go? Do I hit the gas? Do I hit the brakes here? These are all tactical questions and tactics are very, very important. I would actually argue that tactics are the hardest part of running a business and and we can, uh, we'll see if we have time for that in this episode or not, but I think that tactics are the hardest part of running a business. And, and, and tactics are going to be, okay, so let's go back to uh, take Wi-Fi. So we start with this vision of we want to see every hearth retailer enjoy the growth that they deserve. So a strategy is we are going to develop this custom quoting tool that makes it to where you can quote a fireplace in under 20 seconds. So tactics might be, well, are we first going to launch this for gas inserts or wood inserts? What's the interface going to look like for a, a customer? Do they choose a brand first or do they choose a fuel type first, right? So these are all tactical questions that are very, very important. But you keep going back. Tactics, without being anchored in a strategy, they do not work because tactics not connected to anything is just you spinning your wheels. So like tactics for a retailer might be, am I going to do Facebook advertising this month or am I going to advertise in the yellow pages? That's a tactical question, right? The bigger strategy is that is that you're trying to, to, to work on a marketing effort to grow your awareness with consumers. But the tactics of it are really going to depend on your objective, right? So like, well, what are we trying to do? Which is going to be the most effective? Those are tactical decisions, but you can only pursue so many tactics at one time. And when your tactics are not anchored in a cohesive strategy, you will literally run yourself ragged and you'll find that you are doing all kinds of things that are not in alignment with each other and running in multiple different directions. When you have a strategy that's anchored in a vision, all of a sudden your tactics work together where all of a sudden you know you have five people that are all pulling in the same direction because of that unification. So I found this to be very, very effective. And, and it's hard because I would say as retailers, we default to tactics. So like somebody calls in sick, what do I do? This is back ordered. Where do we get the replacement part from? And I'm not saying that that there's not emergencies where you do need to deal with tactics because tactics are very important and I think they're the hardest part of running a business. But those tactics must be anchored in something bigger. They need to be anchored in a strategy. They need to be and that strategy needs to be anchored in a vision. In the book, they talk about how as a company you really have one vision and like very few strategies. You 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 really do, and as, as it's hard because this means you have to say no to things. But if you've got eight different strategies, you're gonna have a million tactics that it's very hard to manage. So as a retailer, if you're trying to achieve your vision, 
you really probably only have like two to three strategies for the entire year and nothing more. So maybe your strategies for the year are we want to double the amount of gas inserts that we sold the year before. It's a great strategy. So what are the tactics? Okay, so maybe the the tactics are going to be, well, each salesperson is going to dedicate four hours a week to following up with past customers, right? That helps achieve the strategy of doubling your gas insert sales, and that's anchored in your vision for the company. But if you've got like six or seven strategies, each one of those is going to have a multitude of tactics and it's too much. So really be thinking about what are the strategic priorities that will help take me to my vision. And and you as the leader and the owner are the only person that knows that vision and you're the only person that can articulate it. But your team members, in order for the tactics and the strategy to make sense and actually be inspiring, they must know why. So you have to communicate your vision. Okay. This is going on long, but I think that it's really important to talk about that. I want to move on to the second concept, which Jim Collins calls a return on luck. And this is so good. So he has a whole chapter dedicated to this. And the chapter is actually called Luck Favors the Persistent. And he gives an example of a rock climber he knew who was basically doing a climb that had never been done. He was, it was a free climb. And it was literally impossible to do, but this person was trying over and over and over again, like literally for years. And people were asking like, why are you wasting the prime of your career on something that will never be able to be done? And as this guy was climbing, he was getting better and better at the route, but there was, there was always outside factors like weather and wind and, and things that would basically prevent him from being able to do it. So all of a sudden there was a perfect storm of like 10 days in a row with like the perfect weather for this climb. And this guy was able to do it and it was a world record. And I don't think it's ever been done since, but the only reason that it worked is because the persistence that for years, this guy had climbed as far as he could. He charted the route. He knew exactly what he was after. And so when luck came, which was like this perfect storm weather break that hadn't happened in, you know, years, he was able to take advantage of it. Luck favors the persistent. What they do that's that's really good is they, they break down luck into three categories. And so Jim Collins and Bill Lazier, they define luck as A, something that you didn't cause. B, something that has significant potential consequence. And C, something that has the element of surprise. So luck can be good or bad, right? But but to, to be what they would consider lucky, it has to be something that you didn't cause. It has significant potential consequence one way or the other and the element of surprise. And what Jim Collins found in his research is that most companies really have about the same amount of luck. Really, every company has situations that fall into this, right? You didn't cause it, significant potential consequence, and the element of surprise. And as they've, you know, they've studied tons and tons of companies over the last 25, 30 years, and companies really get about the same amount of luck. But the return on luck varies significantly depending on the company. And and you think about like this rock climber, right? So you have to read the book to hear the story of it. But like this, this guy's looking at this impossible task, but he's preparing, preparing, preparing. He's charting his way. He's getting as far as he can. He's looking at it. Like if I could just get a break, I could do this, this, and this. He was ready so that when opportunity arrived, he could take advantage of it. And I would say in our industry, most companies return on luck is poor. 
Now, most retailers run their businesses on luck. They don't invest in systems and processes. They don't have a cohesive sales strategy. They don't you know, hire additional installers in the off-season, and they roll the dice. And so when you get a busy year, like you know this last year with COVID, numbers look really good. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. Like, man, that's, that's great. But there are a few companies that, because of their preparation, make a monstrous return on luck, right? So like many companies are happy this year because they say, you know, uh, we're up $250,000 over last year. Hey, great, like good. But do you realize that there's retailers that are up over a million dollars over last year? right? Like, but it's because they've put the pieces in play and they've been very intentional with being persistent towards their goals. And now as, as a, as a turn of luck has come, they can take advantage of it. So recently me and Grant were talking with a dealer and we were encouraging them on how good, you know, one of their salespeople was doing. And this salesperson was, um, really becoming a professional, putting up good numbers and really had a system of documenting their processes, following up with customers and understanding exactly where each customer was in the sales pipeline. And and uh, one of the comments was made, well, yeah, of course they are, but it's been such a good year. Like, of course that that's paying off. And we said, that's true. Like, it has been a really good year. But these habits that the salesperson has developed, this is your insurance policy when things go south. So we've had this influx of good luck, but once we have an influx of bad luck and stuff dries up, people don't have as much money, this salesperson understands the system of selling and they are a machine. They are your insurance policy against bad luck. So bad luck's gonna come at some point for everybody, but this business is in a position where they will not suffer nearly as much as other people who don't follow up with their customers, who don't document what stage of the pipeline customers are at and are essentially treating their business like they're going to Vegas and just throwing everything on black. Like one of those companies is going to fare a lot better when things turn south. So I would ask you, what's your return on luck? Are you being persistent in putting systems and processes and people and infrastructure in place to help your business get better to achieve your ultimate vision? And as you're being persistent in that, continuing to push, continuing to push, continuing to push, I think you'll find that your return on luck is higher. And, and I'll tell you right now, for, for anybody who had a busy year last year, hire a second installation crew. Like right now, hire a second installation crew and your return on luck will skyrocket. If your company doesn't do installations, start right now by you know August you need to have an installation crew in place this is how you start to gain a return on luck so i hope that that concept was impactful for you it it, it really made me think about what are the building blocks i'm putting in place right now that are not sexy that are boring that take money and effort and time but will help me get a higher return on luck when the time comes finally you can't get through a Jim Collins book without talking about people. And you've already heard you know, earlier this podcast season talking to Jenna about this idea of getting the right people on the bus. But in this book, Jim and Bill talk a lot about the concept of first who, then what. First who, then what. And, and this is something that I, I find all the time as, as I work with businesses. And I understand why it's so easy to gravitate towards this, but it's like... Um, we need an installer, so go out and find one. Um, and I get that, 
But Jim Collins would say, no, first get the who, then go find out what they're going to do. And this is really, really important. I believe that you must hire first and foremost for character. You can teach skills, you can teach installation, you can teach sales process, but you cannot quickly teach character. Character is forged in the fires that take a long time to come to fruition. And as a business leader, if you're struggling with things, you might have a lot of the wrong people on the bus in your company. If you ask the question, first who, then what, you'll set yourself up to succeed. And I'll give you an example of this. So when I quit my job, you know, a little over a year ago is at the beginning of the pandemic. And, and you know the story, all my you know speaking gigs and consulting got canceled. So I, I had to pivot and, and, and work on some new things. So I realized very quickly that as I was trying to grow Wi-Fi, we were having more and more and more dealers sign up. But as more people were using the product, all of a sudden I'm aware of features that w- that we need to build that aren't there and and missing things that I didn't think would be a big deal. But now that it's being used at scale, like, oh my gosh, like we're missing some major things that have to be built into this product. So I had to ask the question, so how do I support all these customers and grow, you know, features and everything else in the company? I, I realized very quickly that I, I had come really to... Uh, to the end of, of myself and my skill set. So I started thinking about who is somebody that can share this load with me. And I instantly thought about an old friend of mine named Matt Bradley. And I'd known Matt for years and he was a school teacher and he was a good school teacher, but he'd never had experience in the fireplace industry or anything like that. But he'd done a little bit of like editing work for me in the past when I'd write articles or, or uh, blog posts and things like that. But as I thought about his character, I thought, this is a person that I want to share the load with. This is somebody that I want to be in battle with because, you know, he's a good friend. I know him. I trust his competency. I trust his heart. And when we go to work together in this company, because of his character, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. And so I hired him. And we we first, I just spent a bunch of time just showing him everything that I had. This is how this works. This is what we're thinking about doing here. Here's the problems that I'm up against. And he was able to come alongside and help me problem solve and say, you know, I actually have a lot of aptitude to do this, this, and this. Tim, why don't you focus exclusively on this end? Let me take this. And we really started to build out a system that was bigger than myself. But the only reason that was possible was because it was first who and then what. It was Matt is somebody that I know and I trust and I want him on board with me. Now that he's on board, what are we going to go have him do? And and that is so powerful. I would actually argue that in me and Grant's relationship, it's been the exact same thing. You know, if you read that article back in the March issue of the Firetime magazine, The Journey, it details me and Grant's journey. And frankly, me and Grant, for a lot of this process, have not known what the future holds, but we've known who we want to be there with. And that has been absolutely tremendous. So that concept of first who, then what? Hire for character. Once you have that person, then figure out what they're going to do. My, my advice to retailers is, you know, when you find that person, hire them. And obviously, like, you can't take that totally literally because maybe there's situations where your bottom line can't afford it. And actually, in a little bit, we're going to talk about how to even know when that is. But if your company is profitable and you have some money to make an investment, 
Ask that question, first who, then what? Think about who are the people that you want to be on the battlefield with long term. Now, I'm going to read you uh, a paragraph here out of the book that I think is very powerful, and we'll move on to the next one. I, I found this to be terrific. So here, here is this on page 147 of uh, Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0. The builders of visionary companies were highly persistent, living to the motto, never, never, never give up. But what to persist with? The company. Be prepared to kill, revise, or evolve an idea, but never give up on the company. If you equate the success of your company with the success of a specific idea, as many business people do, then you're more likely to give up on the company if that idea fails. And if that idea happens to succeed, you're more likely to have an emotional love affair with that idea and stick with it too long when the company should be moving vigorously on to other things. But if you see the ultimate creation as the company, not the execution of a specific idea, then you can persist beyond any specific idea, good or bad, and move toward becoming an enduring great institution. Guys, go pick up this book. It is a game changer. We'll get back to our conversation about those three books that you have to read in just one minute. Hey, if you've been listening to the podcast this season, then you know that our last episode of the season is a question and answer episode. We always record these right before the release of the episode so that we can answer all the questions that have come up throughout the season. So if you have questions about anything you've heard today or this season at all, or really anything you've been trying to figure out about your business, I want you to ask it. And you can go to the website, itsfiretime.com slash ask. That's it's firetime.com slash ask. You know, when you listen to a podcast like this or you read a resource like the Firetime Magazine, you get all this amazing information, but there are questions of like, how do I apply it in my situation? What do I do when I'm stuck between A and B? This is your time. So, so don't hesitate and, and we will do everything in our power to answer as many questions as possible in that final episode of the season. So go to itsfiretime.com slash ask and get your question in today. Okay, the second book that is on the must-read list is called The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And this is a book that came out 10 to 12 years ago. And Tim Ferriss, he's got like a world-famous podcast. You very well may listen to the Tim Ferriss Show. He interviews like some of the most successful and famous people in the world trying to get to the bottom of their personal daily habits for influence and effect and, and productivity. This book was recommended to me by a friend, and it was really, really good. I'm, I'm going to give a couple qualifiers, though. So the book is called The 4-Hour Workweek, and if you, like the subtitle is something like Escape the 9 to 5 and uh, Join the Lifestyle of the New Rich. And, and you kind of look at it, and it's like, is this just like a get-rich-quick thing? Like, I, I get that. And um, if someone wouldn't have told me what I'm about to tell you, I might have viewed it that way even as I read it. But with this lens, it's very powerful. So... Tim Ferriss's principle is that life is more than a job and owning a business should be more than a job. If, if you're going to all the blood, sweat, and tears of owning a business, he believes that you deserve to share in the reward of that. And that reward could be freedom. It could be time. It could be money. It could be a lot of different things, but that too many people let their businesses just destroy them. And, and their business, instead of being a dream, just becomes a living hell that they cannot break out of. And so this book, 
I, I would say the purpose of this book is, is to make you realize that you have a bigger purpose in life and your business should empower you to live out that purpose. And that over time, you may even be able to get your business to a place where with a limited amount of your time, you know, four hours a week, 10 hours a week, you're able to get the revenue that you need, which is, you know, fuel in the tank to go and pursue the meaningful things that you want to with your life. That preface really helped me look at the book differently. So that's what I'm going to say. But there's a lot of very practical things. So Tim Ferriss talks about the difference between the old rich and the new rich. He says essentially that the old rich are the people that you think about who work 80 hours a week, have been divorced three times, their kids hate them, but they've got a you know $4 million house and a whole bunch of sports cars. But their life sucks. It's miserable. And he actually tells a story about, about being on an airplane ride back from Vegas. And I think he was sitting in first class talking to this guy who was unbelievably wealthy. And the guy was just miserable. He hated his life. And essentially, it is, it is really fighting the idea that, that is, is really the lie that, that, that wealth is best and that, and that it is worth throwing your life and your soul away for the sake of money. And, and that's very powerful. He says that's the old rich. He says the new rich are those who make enough money to do the things they want to do when they want to do them. And that's powerful. So the new rich are really rich with time and flexibility. Now, there's some finances that come with that. And he talks about how like, yeah, some of the new rich have like a nice car and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the new rich, their goal is not extra zeros in their bank account necessarily. Their goal is to be able to do you know, what they want to do when they want to do it with the people that matter. And, and in the book, this, this is a book that's very tactical. And the book was written about 12 years ago. So some of, some of those tactics have aged a little bit, but it, it is, it is inspiring. And, and, you know, there's some, I'm going to give you a really basic takeaway that I had that you're going to be like, you read this whole book and this is your biggest takeaway. And I'll say, yeah, <laughs> but it gets you to think about your business a lot differently and thinking and think about like, if my business is just dragging me along, um, that's not fair. That's, that's not why I started the business. And, and my life um, is probably going to have a bigger purpose than like just what I'm doing from nine to five, Monday through Friday or Saturday, or maybe Sunday if you work seven days a week. So, so I would say you need to read this book because it's very powerful. There's a lot of very helpful tips that he gives. Um, he literally like tells a story about a guy that was able to, uh, this is like 12 years ago before working remote was a thing. A guy who was able to uh, start working remote, work like three to four hours a week, still produce all of the results that his company wanted and make a full salary. So the guy would just go like live in like Indonesia or like Italy or somewhere like that for months at a time. And again, um, he was still being fair to his employers because he was giving them exactly what they wanted and delivering, you know, better results. But he'd been able to really make his time as efficient as possible. There's a lot in this book about efficiency with time. It is, it's very, very good for that. But here's, here's the big takeaway that I had. Tim Ferriss says this, only check your email twice a day. And I, I'm like, whoa, that, like, that's a great idea. Only check your email twice a day. And you might be listening to this thinking like, there's no way. And depending on your position, that, that might be true. But I would challenge you to ask that question. So like, 
the thing that I was thinking about for me, so I actually haven't had email on my phone for about a year and a half, and it's been the best decision I've ever made. I also have disabled color on my phone. That's a whole other side thing. So uh, so I literally I have a black and white phone um, with no email on it. I, I did not miss a beat. People still know how to get a hold of me. I still check my email, but it's not on my phone, and that keeps me more focused and less addicted to my phone. The color thing has to do with like... When you, when you when you have the color on your phone, it's it's so visually enticing. It's like literally like smoking cigarettes with your eyes. It's so addictive, and um, so that's been one of the things I've, I've put in place to to help me stay focused on the things that matter and not things that don't, like my phone. Anyway, when it comes to uh, email, uh, so I haven't had it on my, on my phone for a while, but even on my computer, like you know what it's like to just get dragged into that inbox where you're checking this, replying to that, and hours and hours goes by, and it's like, what did I even do? So he, he says straight up, like, you should check your email at noon and at four o'clock in the afternoon. And at the absolute most, spend one hour at each of those times. If it's going to take more than an hour, you need to type up that document separately in like a Word document and then just paste it into an email at a later time. But do not have your inbox open for longer than one hour twice a day. Um, that was really powerful for me. And at, at first I started thinking like, I can't do that. I've got all kinds of clients. Like, what if there's an emergency? And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, well, I haven't had email on my phone for a year and a half, and I don't always have my laptop with me anyway. And if anyone really needs to get a hold of me, they've got my phone number. Um, I'm going to give it a try. Now, Tim actually has this ridiculous thing. He, he wants you to put like a permanent out-of-office message up, like at least when you start this out, that basically says... Um, I'm trying to be more efficient with my time and I'm very busy right now. So because of that, I'm going to be checking my email at, you know, 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. every day. If this is an emergency that cannot wait, please give me a, a phone call. And uh, he has a whole system for phone calls and stuff like that, too. But he said that he did that with his own company that he was running. He had a, he had a uh, like a, a vitamin supplement company that was doing a lot of revenue every year. He did that and nobody called him. And that's actually the same thing that I found is that generally speaking, like twice a day is still a lot. I mean, if, if somebody emails me at nine in the morning and they have a response back by noon, like that's totally acceptable. You know, if they email me at one in the afternoon, they have an ex- a response back by four o'clock at the end of the day. That's totally fine. If it's an absolute emergency, they will call me, they will text me, they'll find a way to get a hold of me. But freeing yourself from the tyranny of the inbox is powerful. And I would encourage you as a business owner, do the same thing. You, you know, you might think you're too powerful, you're too important, no one can live without you, they can. I would say if, if you're a sales rep, this is tough because you know customers could email you at any time. Work with your manager on this. Maybe for you it's three times a day, right? Like if you check your email at 10 a.m., uh, you know, 1 p.m. and 4 p.m., uh, if a customer writes you and has a question, again, like a response back within a couple hours is very, very reasonable. You could also put something in your email signature saying, um, you know, I check my email at these times a day so that I can be most efficient with my customers. Uh, please give me a phone call if you need an immediate answer. There's a lot of things you can do, but I found that to be very, very powerful. So you might think you can't break free. Read this book. It's very, very helpful for that. Okay, the third book on our list is called Profit First by Miles McAllowitz. And I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. I'm actually going to be trying to get Miles on this podcast because I'd heard him a couple times uh, through, you know, on different speaking engagements and on, on the podcast circuit. And I really liked what he said, but I just kind of listened and thought, oh, that's nice, but I didn't really take it that seriously. In the last four months or so, 
Uh, I've read his book and I believe in this concept, especially for businesses in our industry as, as me and Grant travel to work with different businesses. Um, a lot of them don't know if they're making money or losing money and they really don't know until the end of the year. This, this book is for you if that's the case. So Miles McCallowitz, he, he has a whole story about how he's, he started, you know, a couple of like multi-million dollar companies. He sold them. He was very wealthy and then because he didn't know how to manage money, he made a bunch of bad investments and he lost everything. And the Profit First system is a system of managing money in your business that I think is very powerful. So he gives the example of like, if you want to know the, you know, the financial state of your business in um, normal like accounting terms, like, well, you got to look at the P&L and you have to look at, at your uh, your income statement, balance sheet, like all these different different documents and you have to look at them in tandem and then based on an analysis, you can figure out where you are. And he says, there's nothing wrong with that if you're Mr. Spock, but most of us aren't Mr. Spock. And the truth is that many business owners use bank balance accounting where they look at their checking account and if it, the number's high, they think like, okay, I can buy some stuff. I'm doing really good. If the number's low, they, they panic and they freak out. And he says that that is terrible, right? It's the equivalent of like renting a car without a speedometer and a gas gauge. You wouldn't do it. Um, if you found out that you could get a good deal on a flight, but there were no instruments, there was no GPS system, there was no autopilot, like you're probably not going to fly in that plane. So why on earth do you think you can run a business without any financial gauges in real time to run your company? Now, we hear that and think like, yeah, of course, it makes sense, but we don't practice it. And the reason why is because like, I don't have the option of renting a car without with, without those gauges because it's illegal. Um, it is legal to run a business uh, without dashboard gauges because this is the, you know, if you're listening in the US, it's the United States of America and we're free. But just because you are free to do something doesn't mean you should. I wish I could... Uh, communicate that to, to everybody in this country. Just because you are free to do something doesn't mean you should. And the same is true with running your business. Okay. So the profit first system is something that leverages human tendency and behavior to your advantage. So this is actually a system of bank balance accounting, but one that in real time, you can actually understand what your business is making. You can understand what you owe the government. So you're never blindsided by taxes, right? Like how often do you get to the end of the year and your accountant's like, oh yeah, you need a $150,000 extra for taxes this year. And you're like, what? Like, this happens all the time in, in business and it's crippling. So this is a way to plan for that and actually know how much money you have to spend on investments and raises and, and, and all those different things. So the book goes into great detail, but essentially Mike McCallowitz says that you need to run your business with five checking accounts. And in the same way that like when uh, you eat Thanksgiving dinner, you uh, you bring the turkey on this big platter onto the table. You don't just like reach with your hands and start like eating off of that platter. What you do is you cut it up and a little bit of the, the turkey goes on this plate, a little bit goes on this plate, and then the mashed potatoes go here and then here, then here. In the same way, money should flow through your business in a very specific pattern. And this is a really cool system that I think can be very beneficial for a lot of hearth retailers. They're not familiar reading income statements and P&Ls and, and uh, you know, balance sheets and everything else that comes with that. So the five different accounts for your business that he recommends are first an account that's called income. The second account is called profit. The third is called taxes. The fourth is owner's pay. 
And then the fifth is operating expenses. And we'll go into, into details on this in just a second. But one thing that he says is in traditional accounting, normally profit is equal to income minus expenses, right? I make this much money, my stuff costs me this much, and what's left over is profit. And while technically true, he says that doesn't work with human behavior because of something called Parkinson's law. And Parkinson's law details out that the more time or money allocated for something, the more time and money it will take. So if I tell you, um, hey, I need you to write a report on uh, your sales of gas inserts this year, and it's due in three weeks. You will take three weeks to get it to me. If I tell you, you need to redo your showroom and you've got $15,000, you will use $15,000. This is called the law of Parkinson's law. Things expand to the amount of capacity given them. And he says the same thing's true in your business. So if, if you view in your business that profit is equal to income minus expenses and whatever's left over is profit, that expenses will grow and grow and grow and grow. And profit is just, you know, whatever's left over, which is usually very little. So he actually believes that income minus profit equals expenses. And again, this is it's a, it's a psychological thing, but it's really powerful. Income minus profit equals expenses. So as a business owner, you should have a dedicated percentage of any income that comes in. This much of it goes to profit. And we run the business on whatever is left over. So in the same way, like... You know, if I tell you, you've got, you know, $15,000 to do your, your remodeling or showroom, that's it. That's all you have to work with. Same thing with expenses. If I say, Hey, you've only got, you know, $40,000 to run your company this month, you're going to find a way to do it. And, and this can actually cause a lot of innovation because limited resources and scarcity create innovation. So, so that's his framework and his concept. So what he recommends doing, and the book goes through like how to allocate percentages and everything else and, and, and where to start versus where to end up. So think about this just for now. So if you're, if you're a business owner, uh, and every single year you get to the end of the year and you're rolling the dice, am I going to get anything? Am I going to have to pay something? I have no idea. This system will change that. Okay. So the first thing is that all money coming into the business goes into the income account. All money coming into the business goes into the income account. From there, and he has a rhythm of how you do these transfers, but this is like the turkey getting put on the table. Then the turkey has to make its way around the table. And like, you know, your little four-year-old son doesn't take as much turkey as like grandpa or grandma, right? It's in the same way these different accounts take different percentages of that money. Okay, so all the incoming money goes into income. After that, a portion of it first goes to profit. So let's, and he just says, if, if you've never done this before, start with 1%, right? So, so whatever money you made, 1% of it goes to profit. And think about this, like, if, could you cut your expenses by 1% if you needed to? Yes, you could. So like, this is not hard to do, okay? But now 1% of it, it goes to profit. The second that it goes to profit, whatever that dollar amount was, like let's just say it's $1,000, goes to profit, you immediately allocate for taxes. So um, you go back to your income account. We've, we've, we've taken a little bit of this money and we've moved it into profit. Whatever our tax bracket is, let's call it 40%, that money gets allocated from income to taxes. So what's just happened? I've set aside money that's profit. And I've paid for my taxes on it. 
So at the end of the year, there's no surprises, right? Every time you pay yourself profit, you pay yourself in taxes. This is literally what I do with myself. Every time I cut myself a check, I immediately take some and put it in a separate bank account that's all for taxes. And it doesn't matter how big that account gets. It's not my money. It's the government's, okay? But you've just covered those bases. Now, after this, the next bucket is owner's pay. So what's the salary that you make as an owner for working in the business, right? So if you're the general manager, you get a salary outside of your owner's dividends at the end of the year, right? So whatever that salary is, that's the next thing to come out of the income account that you're, you're paying yourself as the owner. Because if you think about this, like who's the most valuable employee in a company? If, if you're an owner who works inside the business, it is you. And it doesn't mean your other employees are not valuable, but they don't have a job if you get fired, right? So over time, if you could eventually get to the point where you hire a GM and you literally like, you know, don't, don't do anything except for like sit on an island, you can find something else to do with this money or it becomes the, the GM salary because they're your most important employee. But owner's pay is where that goes next. And then everything else that's left over gets moved into operating expenses. And this is the money that you have to run your business for the rest of the month. Now, the book goes into all kinds of detail about this, and I know you have questions if you're listening, but his recommendation is that when you plan your forecasting, when you decide how much of a percentage is the owner going to take, how much money should the owner make, what you need to do is look at your entire year, look at your average operating expenses, and add 10%. So there's always a buffer. Now he goes into different things of like a rainy day fund. If, if, if there's a bad month or if you have an unexpected charge, the book goes into all that detail. But what's cool about this system is that now when you log into your bank account, you know, how much money do I have to run my business? Can we afford to buy a truck right now? How much profit have we made this year? What, what, what do I owe in taxes? You can visually look at it in real time and I believe that this is a game changer for business owners in our industry. So I'm going to try to get Mike Michalowicz on the podcast at some point in the future. But if you have not read it, you need to read the book Profit First. If you've been dragged along by your business for too many years and you feel like you've just been dumping money into it, this book is can change that because it, it gives you a visual indicator. A lot of the reason that you, you might've been banging your head against a wall is because you, ha- you, you, you don't know how much gas is in the tank. You don't know how fast you're going, right? If you compare it to driving a plane, like you don't have an autopilot, you have nothing to course correct when things go wrong because you don't know where you are. This is a simple way to take control of your business. I mean, if you, if you look at Donald Miller, he's running StoryBrand and now the company Business Made Simple with essentially this same plan. And they're pushing a $20 million company and this is how he does it. He, he logs in, he looks at his checking accounts and he instantly knows the vitality of his business. It's so much better than just rolling the dice. Now, you know, I know that I'm going fast. I, I really wanted to talk about all three books and In the show notes, I've got links to all of them. I will tell you with Profit First, get the audiobook. This is like literally the best audiobook I've ever heard in my life. Mike Michalowicz himself reads it and and it is a riot. Like rarely do I laugh out loud when I'm when I'm like, you know, listening to a book on my runs and and I was like LOLing on this quite a bit. So it's really, really good. But All three of these books are going to challenge you for different reasons. Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0 is something that really makes you think about why your business exists and what is your strategy and your vision for the future. 
the four hour work week is just straight up, you know, how can you take control from not getting dragged along where your business just consumes everything, your heart and soul, and you have nothing left. And then profit first really helps you take control of your finances in a very practical way. So you've got your homework now. You've heard my takeaways. I know there's going to be questions. So in the Q&A episode coming up, we're going to address them. So make sure to go to the website, itsfiretime.com slash ask, and and make sure to get those questions in. That's itsfiretime.com slash ask. Well, I hope that you guys got a lot of value out of that. Those books were very impactful for me. And, and I know that they can really make a difference with you as well. So please don't be intimidated. Sometimes you can be like, oh man, like, you know, I can't, I can't read this book. I'm not a great reader. What if I can't do what it says? You know, that fear is always there, but ignore it. Like these books are there to help you. The audiobooks are so accessible. If you have questions about that, you know, you can just reach out to me and I would love to dive in and help. But leaders are always growing. The second you stagnate is the second that you start to die. And, you know, unfortunately, for better or for worse, like a leader is, is like a living organism. Like if you're not growing, you're dying. And that doesn't always mean financially. I think that, that there's a time and place to decide when your company is, is big enough. That, that's not, you know, what this is about. But if you're not investing in your own growth, I guarantee it's hindering your company. And, and the funny thing is that I guarantee all your team members, they know all your weaknesses that you are blind to and they are dying for you to become self-aware. So reading books like this is going to help you do that and take control of your business. Now, if this podcast has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website, patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash it's fire time. And guys, it means the world that some of you are supporting this on a monthly basis. Like seriously, all of those funds are going to equipment and outsourcing the administrative costs and duties of this podcast so that we can continue to provide you amazing content. I, I do not take it lightly that you know, I, I get the joy of just being able to, to speak to you every week when, when we do this, and, and it means a lot. So I hope you took some great things away from this episode. Use this time. Grant says there's no off-season. There's only the invest season. What are you doing to invest? Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website, itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time.